you take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Haggai, we're going to finish up our uh, walk through the book of Haggai today. Uh, we're going to take a break from the Minor Prophets for next Sunday, and then we'll jump back into those first of the year with Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is an interesting book. It's going to be a fun ride. We'll see where the Lord takes us when we get there. Uh, last week, we began this discussion of this topic, from hardships to blessings. We talked about the first point last week, which is... Um, it's a question of consecration. And now today we're going to cover the other two points. We're going to finish out uh, this book and this chapter, chapter 2. We're going to begin reading this morning in just a few moments from chapter 2, verse 10. We'll give a kind of a recap of the first point from last week, and then we'll get into the meat of today. I want to, I want to kind of give you this statement as we open uh, our discussion through this passage today. And this is kind of where we want to hang our, our hats. A good servant of the great shepherd must strive to keep their hands clean and their hearts pure in service to the king. Let me say that again. A good servant of the great shepherd must strive to keep their hands clean and their hearts pure in service to the king. I mentioned this verse last week. I gave you the wrong location, so I'm going to correct that today. I was right about the verse. I was wrong about where it's at. It's in Psalm 24. I was right about that, but it's in verses 3 and 4, not 6 through 8. So let me read that for you. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? Now, he's talking about coming into the presence of God, which is what we do when we come to him and we serve him and we, we operate within uh, his presence as children of God. And verse 4 gives the answer. It says, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Remember, we talked about that. Clean hands means there's no known sin. There's no active sin in my life. And a pure heart means that you're laying yourself bare before the Lord and saying, search me, O God, see if there's any wicked way within me. Uh, purify me so that I can be of service to you. So no sin that I know of, no uh, sins that I'm harboring, and that means holding grudges, that means uh, you know, uh, covetousness and all those things that tend to fester inside the human heart. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. Now, that's who we need to be when we come into the presence of the Lord. That's who we need to be if we're going to be as right with God as we know how to be. What that doesn't mean is we segregate and separate ourselves from the lost world around us. It doesn't mean that we avoid lost people, that we treat them like they're uh, lepers and we're trying not to catch the disease. Uh, we, we avoid acting like lost people. <laughs> we avoid participating in lost activities. We, we don't want to get the stain of sin on us by sinning but we don't, we don't separate ourselves and hide. Uh, I've heard it say, you know, us four no more, or uh, we, we crawl into the, the holy castle and we lift up the gate and have a moat around us so we don't get in contact. That's not the intention. Matter of fact, if you look at John 17, when Jesus is praying over his disciples, whom he is sending into the world to evangelize it with the gospel, he says they are in the world, but not of the world. You can think about it like a good boat. A good boat has plenty of water on the outside, but not a whole lot on the inside. And if a boat switches that, if a boat starts getting water on the inside, it becomes a submarine. And if you're an unintentional submarine, you're of no use. So we need to understand that for us, it is a question of consecration, but there's also more to it than that. It's more than just being consecrated and staying away and not letting anybody get near us. Uh, there's times in our lives when we go through difficulties, we go through hardships, and we just have to press on. Uh, we're, we're promised that we're going to have trouble. We're promised we're going to have difficulty. We are not promised that we're never going to encounter problems and, and hardships and 
and, and the problem that we find with the people of Haggai's time is that God sent them on a mission, like us. He sent them to rebuild the temple. He made us the temple. But when they encountered adversity, they shrunk back from the mission of God, and they started being self-serving. They started worrying only about themselves. Now, I've already gotten in trouble with April. I'm going to get in more trouble, but that's just how it is. Uh, we had talked a few weeks ago, uh, she and I, about, about sharing something with you guys, and I didn't feel the time was right, and we had kind of talked about we were going to wait until everything was kind of settled, and then the Lord told me this morning in the first service, now, and I did it, and then she told me, you know you're going to have to do that in the second service. I was like, yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> I don't like to think that far ahead. I like to be as surprised when I say something as everybody else in the room. Uh, about six weeks ago, I had some tests run, just kind of that typical stuff that you have to do when you get to be my age. I was having some issues and, and, and just finally broke down and said, okay, let's, let's jump in. And so they, they did a couple of tests, and, and I waited. The results were supposed to be back in five days, and then it came seven, eight days. And then they finally came back, and uh, the doctor called me and said, uh, we did the tests, we did, ran all the biopsies, and uh, they did an EGD, and they found some places, and they took some samples, and she said, there was lymphatic tissue and an excess of white blood cells. I'm no doctor. You know, every time I start to say that, I feel like Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man. <laughs> and then I feel that's redundant, so I won't say it. Um, I, I, I know enough. I know lymphatic, and I know white blood cells. So I'm like, hmm. So I called April. Actually, I, as she was telling me all this, I'm texting April. And so I sent it to her, and so we talked, and, you know, we just need to run another EGD. We need to do some more samples. And so we had to wait a couple weeks to do that. That was a fun couple weeks. And they finally did that, and they got it sent off, and then she called and said uh, everything looked a lot better. It, you know, they didn't see the same things, and, but we need to go ahead and follow up with a hematologist. A hematologist went and met with them last week, and he said, I'm 85% sure it's not cancer, but we need to do a few more tests. They drew some blood. They're going to do a CT, all that. So, so saying all that, and I have shared that with the elders and with the staff, uh, but I didn't share it with everybody because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to give anybody anything to worry about when we don't even know what there is. Okay, what we know now is that there's something going on. They're treating that, but again, they're they're fairly certain it's not cancer. But we're going to go ahead and do the one more step to make sure that it's not there. Now I share all that with you for two purposes: one, so that it doesn't get out and you guys feel like I've lied to you or I've hidden something from you. That was never my intention. Again. I don't like a lot of attention. I didn't want to share that and get everybody nervous and upset or, or you know, asking me about it. It's fine. And, and by the way, when, I share, when we share this with the kids, I'll, I'll tell, tell you guys what I told them. It's going to be fine one way or the other. When we first got the first diagnosis, if they said it's full-blown cancer, you got six weeks to live, it's going to be fine. I, I want you all to hear me. God has counted out my days. He has numbered them. He has an appointment schedule for me that I don't get to look at on my calendar, but I know he's got it set, and I'm fine. There's no amount of medicine. There's no amount of treatment that's going to keep me here one second longer than he wants me here, and there's no disease or illness that's going to take me home one second quicker than he wants me to go home. I'm good with all of that. But I say that for that purpose, so you know what's going on, and then for number two, so that you can understand that everybody has stuff. We all have stuff. We all have difficulties. We all have problems. We're, we're all going to face adversity. You are not defined by your adversity. You're defined by the God who leads you through your adversity. So I want you to know he's trustworthy. We're going to talk in a few moments. I feel like I'm kind of spoiler alert for the, for the sermon. 
He says here in the latter part of the chapter, is there grain left in the granary? Is there seed in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not produced. We don't have to wait until he does something to trust him. We don't, listen, we've said this on Wednesday nights time and time again. He is good whether he answers the prayer to your satisfaction or not. He is worthy if he heals or if he doesn't heal. He is still worthy through every situation. The Israelites lost sight of that. They were building the temple like they were called to do. They faced adversity. They shut down, and they had to be punished for it. They had to be reminded of who God was. He did not give them the, the, the challenge to build only if they didn't face adversity. He gave them the challenge to build regardless of what happened. And just as he's given us the challenge to go and take the gospel as it is to people as they are, regardless of the adversity, regardless of the challenges, regardless of the diagnoses, we have a mission, and we must be people on and about our mission. Amen? All right, if you would stand and let's begin reading Haggai chapter 2 and we'll begin with verse 10. I'll try to scrunch in the re, um, kind of retelling or, or, or refreshing of our memories on the first point, which is a question of, uh, a question of consecration. Uh, on the 24th day of the ninth month, again, remember, that's December of 520, so this is a Christmas message. In, in the, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priest for a ruling. Remember, he's testing the priest a little bit to prove a point. He says, if a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? And the priest answered, no. They answered correctly. Holiness is not contagious. If something is consecrated and it touches something unholy, it does not necessarily make that holy. Then he asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, yes, it becomes defiled. So, uh, back to Leviticus, if a priest or, or somebody touched a dead animal, they were unclean for a day. If they touched an, a dead person, they were unclean for seven days. And he's saying that uh, uncleanness or defilement is contagious. If you are unclean and you touch something that is holy, you make it unclean. Then Haggai replied, verse 14, so is this people and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, he's going to keep saying that over and over again because he's trying to remind the people, this is not the word of the prophet, this is the word of the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. Remember, we talked about this, this, this concept of consecration being an Old Testament concept, but we bring it into the New Testament. We see in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, this list of sins that will keep you out of heaven. And then he says this in verse 11, and some of you were like this. In other words, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. We, through the blood of Jesus, have been consecrated. We have been made holy. Now, pick up in verse 15. Now, from this day on, think carefully. By the way, if you underline or highlight in your Bible, that's a good phrase. Think carefully. You're going to see it again. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, that's a terrifying thing, I struck you all the works of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. Man, that's a strong concept there, church. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, look at the pivot, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. 
You see that repetition, he's trying to get him to listen. Is there seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. But, but from this day on, I will bless you. That's the promise God made to them. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his own sword. By the way, he says that also in verse 6 of chapter 2. We'll talk about that more in a minute. On that day, this is the, Lord, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration. And make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Can you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, quicken it to our hearts and minds. Help us to know exactly what we need to apply from here to help us know you better, serve you more fully, and trust you completely because you're worthy of all of that. God, you are holy, 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 and we submit to you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So Haggai asked them about this defilement and this holiness, this consecration, how they're interconnected. Does holiness transfer? No. Does defilement transfer? Yes. And he's trying to get them to understand that because they are out of his will, because they are being disobedient to what he has commanded and called them to do, they are defiled. Even if they're trying to follow the rituals and the rites and they're trying to do all the right things, he said, no, no, no. Your heart has already defiled you because you're not doing what I have commanded you and what I sent you here to do. And so he tells them, I punished you to get your attention and you're still not here. You're not with me. You're not doing what I called you to do. And so that's why he's having the, the prophet Haggai basically rattle their cage with this prophecy. So it, it's always, first and foremost, a question of consecration. But he doesn't leave them at the question of consecration. He moves on in verses 15 through 19 to a guarantee of goodness. Again, what a wonderful thing we can see when we see the grace of God shown even into the Old Testament, even when we see problems that go back all the way to uh, Israel's day in the mid-500 uh, uh, B.C., we see the grace of God. In verse 15, he asked them to examine themselves. Now, anytime, anytime God says you need to examine yourself or, or think carefully as he words it here, when he tells you to examine yourself, He's not doing that to tell you what a jam-up job you're doing. Now, kids, let me give you all a little pro tip, okay, because I, I experienced this a lot in my younger years. If your parents ask you, are you sure that's what happened? They know. You're busted. You need to do that. Like, come on out. They got us. You know, just throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Tell us. You should tell the truth first off, but if you haven't been telling the truth, are you sure about that? That's your opportunity to go, no, I'm not, <laughs> and then tell the truth. So he calls them to think carefully. He does it five times in two chapters in this book, twice in chapter one, three times in this passage. Why would he do that? Anytime God repeats himself, you better pay attention. If it's in the book, you ought to pay attention to it. If he's repetitive with it, you really need to pay attention to it. He is telling them, I gave you a job to do. You're not doing the job Hello, McFly, He's think carefully, think carefully, think carefully. Pay attention to what you're doing. Check yourself before you wreck yourself, as we would, you know, the kids of the 90s would say. He's, he's referencing this grain heap and the wine press. What he's saying is, you thought that you had this much grain, it turns out it's only this much. 
You thought you had this much wine. It turns out it's only this much. Why? Because of your disobedience. Because I am still punishing you, even though I've released you from exile. It's almost like God saying, I gave you 70 years in exile. You didn't learn nothing. 70 years in exile, I miraculously, supernaturally release you, make a pagan king let you go, and make a pagan king finance your, op, your, your uh, efforts to rebuild the temple, and you get there, and somebody gets in your way, and you go, Whew. and you quit doing the work God gave you to do, and you start doing your own work. I, I'm of the mindset, that this is not, this is not from the text, but I, I just know people, I'm of the mindset that if they had not built their houses, when they quit building his house, it would have gone better for him. But, but that's not what we do, is it? I, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody just quit working at the church, they get their feelings hurt, they get mad, or they've got some sin they don't want to repent of, and so they slip away, they quit doing stuff at the church. They still go to work. They still do their hobbies. They still you know, paint their bedroom and, you know, work in the flower garden or whatever, they still do all that stuff. See, we don't quit working when we encounter problems. We just tend to work for ourselves then. We encounter difficulties. We, we shun God. We quit doing the work He's called us to do, but we keep working. We keep doing stuff that we want to do, and then we're upset when He doesn't bless us. That's kind of what we see here with Israel. They're like, man, we're, we, we came to do what you wanted us to do, but we ran into problems. If you wanted us to do it, why did you give us problems? Hello? <laughs> Maybe he wanted you to persevere. Maybe he wanted you to continue to work to be a witness to somebody. Maybe he wanted you to stay the course. Maybe he wanted to see if you were really legit. Listen, serving God when everything is perfect is not where you really find out how you think about God. You really find out how you feel about God when you're flat of your back. When you're, when you're flat of your face, weeping before the, before the Lord because you're broken, because you're, you're heartbroken, or because you're disappointed, or because you've realized that you have sin in your life, you really know where the rubber meets the road with a relationship with Christ is in the difficulties. They ran into difficulties. They said, all right, boys, shut her down, and let's go build our own houses. Let's do our own thing. He, he tells them in verse 17 that he had made their work polluted. He, he had... He had he had pressed them. He had, he had struck them. Why? Because they were not getting the message. Uh, he, he wanted them to repent and be consecrated and then continue the work. They didn't want to do the repenting and consecrating, and they sure didn't want to do the work, so they just sat and did what they wanted to do. I, I think sometimes we wonder why we are walking through an empty season. Anybody here ever done that? Come on, you tell the truth. It's all right. I'll be the only one. I don't care. How many of you have walked through a difficult time in your life? Now, how many of you have walked through that difficult time and then didn't learn anything from it? Okay, a few honest people. <laughs> See, some of, the, some of the time we walk through difficulties because life is difficult. We walk through difficult times because these clay vessels are breaking down. We walk through difficult times because we live in a fallen world. We walk through difficult times because the enemy wants to derail or detract us from the mission. Sometimes we walk through difficult times because we're stupid and we make terrible life choices. We all walk through difficult times. Here's the thing. God is trying to teach you through difficult times, whether they're brought on by yourself or whether they're brought on by the world or whether he allows or causes them so that you will learn. The problem is that most of us are slow learners when it comes to that. We're going through difficult times and we just want to say, hey, hey, God, stop. Stop this difficult stuff. 
rather than God teach me what I need to learn about you during this difficult stuff, we just say, God, stop the difficult stuff. That's not how it works. And by the way, I'll be honest with you, that's not what, what's best for you and I. It, it's not best for you and I that we never encounter difficulties. You know why football teams practice by hitting each other in practice? Because if you don't get hit in practice, the first time you get hit in a game, you will quit. They asked Charles Barkley, a great professional basketball player, they asked Charles Barkley one time why he didn't play football. He said, I went out for football. He said, I was out there one day, worst day of my life. He said, I went out there one day and they were hitting me and running and all. He said, I, mm, we can do something different than this. I'm going to go play basketball. You see, sometimes you've got to get hit so you can absorb the hit and keep going. And that's what we, that's what we find out when we serve the Lord. We're going to get hit. He punished them to teach them, but they missed the lesson. The only thing worse than going through a hard season is going through a hard season in which you don't learn and grow. You're going to go through difficulties. You should just make your mind up, okay, Lord, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm, I'm listening. If it's me, I repent. If it's not me, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to know you better. I've quoted this partially from C.S. Lewis many times. I went and found the quote so I can give you the, the exact, because he's so much smarter than me, much better the way he says it. Let me give you the entire quote. C.S. Lewis talking about pain. He said, pain insists upon being attended to. Isn't that the truth? God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is, a, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said that about pain. And I can tell you, I have experienced it, and I am acquainted with it, and he's dead on. He is right. Pain gets our attention. It's God's megaphone. It rouses us up. We can get lazy and sedentary and set in our ways and comfortable, and sometimes a little pain, a little zap, will get you out of your seat and looking for what the Lord has for you to do. In verses 18 and 19, he tells them to mark the day. He says, hey, make a note. Mark the day. He promises to bless them going forward. And this is a huge pivot for the post-exilic Jews and their relationship with Yahweh and their work on rebuilding the temple. However, it doesn't happen unless they get their priorities straight and put him and his work first. Again, I go back to that first sermon. I told you when I preached it. I know everybody just remembers that like y'all were listening so intently six weeks ago or whatever it was. But, but that's the message upon it which everything else that Haggai says. It is, it is a problem of priorities. A, a good thing is a good thing until it becomes a God thing and then it's an idol. You've got to make sure that whatever you are doing that is good, build your business. Uh, study and get your education. Work on your marriage. Work on your relationships. You know, treat others well. Serve the church. But your priority has got to be why you're doing all those things, and that better be because you are called to serve Christ, and you are serving Him to the best of your ability in any and every situation and circumstance that comes along. Your priority must be Christ. No matter how much good you do, if your priorities are messed up, your work will be messed up, and that's what he's trying to tell them. He, he asked if the seeds are back in the barn as a way of reminding them of His sovereignty and how they can trust Him. Now imagine the power of this statement coming from the exact same God that had sent them into exile and that had delivered them from exile when he says this, from this day on, I will bless you. From this day, not once the crops have come in, not once the trees are producing, not once the granaries are full, no, from this day. But there's no grain, Lord. 
There's no fruit, Lord. There's no crop, Lord. I'm still hungry, Lord. I'm still struggling, Lord. I, I don't have a better diagnosis. My relationship is not fixed. My, I, I still don't have a job or I'm still looking at this problem or this situation. He's saying from this day forward, I will bless you. Why? Because they got their priorities right. What he's trying to tell us is that he is sovereign and he will take care of us. Here, here's something I want you to hang on right here. We shouldn't have to see the results before we trust the Lord's ability to come through for us. I'm afraid that sometimes that's our biggest problem. We're saying, okay, Lord, I trust you. Show me. Wait, what? Lord, I trust you on this, but I'm going to need about 10% down. Can I tell you what the Bible says? The Bible says he gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment on what's to come. Can I tell you something? You can't ask for anything more valuable than the down payment he has already given you. Trust him. Don't wait for the grain. Don't wait for the crops. Don't wait for the problem to be resolved. Don't wait for the relationship to get better. Don't wait for the doctor's report to come back in. It doesn't matter what the doctor's report says. It doesn't matter what your, what your boss says or what the economy does. What matters is that we have a sovereign, faithful, creator God who loved us, loved us enough to send his son to live a sinless life, die a sacrificial death, rise from the grave and be seated at the right hand of the Father so that you and I can know that he is a man of his word. When he says he will bless us, he will bless us. Stop asking for more. That's just number two. I'm about half fired up, David. Number three, I love this. If you, if you look at the way everything breaks down, it's almost like you, you toss out these last few verses, if, you're being, if I'm being honest. And, and to be really fair, I kind of thought about doing that. And then the more I read them and looked at them, I was like, no, I think there's a word here for us. And here's the word. There's a promise of promotion. There's a promise of promotion. Verses 20 through 23, he is speaking specifically to Zerubbabel. Crazy name, great promise. Here's what he says. He speaks to the governor of this little remnant of the great nation that Israel once was. He speaks to his people to encourage them. God, in his sovereignty, reminds them of who he is, and then he makes specific promises to what he's going to do. He says to Zerubbabel, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. In other words, man, I got you. You're not a king. He couldn't be king, but he could be ruler. Because of the way the exile worked and, and his position, he couldn't be king, but he could be ruler. And so he is now going to be the ruler of this remnant, this new Israel, this, this rebirth from this 70 years of exile. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild the city. Go read Ezra and Nehemiah. And Zerubbabel is going to lead them. And so he makes a promise to them. It might not seem significant to the world on the world stage right now, but he is going to make Israel great again. And that's not, a, that's not a political thing. It came out before I could catch it. He is promising to restore them, and he's promising to do it through the leadership of Zerubbabel. The author of Hebrews calls our minds back to Haggai 2.6. Listen to what it says. Hebrews 12, 25 and 26. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, and here's Haggai 2.6, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And then he says, I will overturn royal thrones. That word overturn in the Hebrew is hafach. 
And it means to turn about or to turn over. This is a commanding word. This is an action word. God is not, he doesn't say I'm going to redirect. He doesn't say I'm going to nudge and, 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 and ease over. He's like, I'm going to come up in here and toss stuff around. Like I'm going to chunk stuff. This is a complete overturning. This is what he's going to do at the end. He cannot get to, listen to me, he cannot get to the point of the end where he overturns all of this junk this world has created unless the Messiah comes. The Messiah can't come unless there's an Israel. God had a plan and a purpose before the foundations of the world. He knew before he made you that you would fall. And because he knew you, because he knew you would fall, he made a way for you to be restored. A lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is not plan B. He was always plan A. And there is no plan B. And he's telling them here, I've got a plan and a purpose for you. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can stop it. You just have to trust it. Then the last verse in this entire book is a beautiful declaration of God regarding Zerubbabel. Look at verse 23. On that day, I'm going to skip the, the declarations. On that day, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant. And make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. Now, my servant. In, in our vernacular, servant has gotten kind of a negative connotation. We think of servant as lowly. I want to remind you, Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And when he uses this term, my servant, in the Hebrew it is ebed. Ebed. And it means a bondman or a bond servant. We can miss the importance of this if we don't pay attention. Let me give you some other people that God referred to as my servant in the Old Testament. How about people like Abraham? Heard of him? Pretty big deal. Made the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrew. How about Moses? Spoke to God as a friend. Pretty good, pretty good resume on Moses. He was a servant. How about Joshua? How about David? And then you look at the New Testament. The word in the New Testament is doulos, which means slave or bondservant. It's the same, same connotation with the Hebrew word and the Greek word, uh, doulos ebed. It's the same kind of feel. Uh, go Think about the, the, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, James 1.1. He doesn't introduce himself as he's writing this letter. He doesn't, he doesn't state his resume, uh, Lauren, as James, the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't say James who grew up in the same household as the Virgin Mary. He doesn't, he doesn't use any of that. How does he introduce himself? James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant is an important title. We should all ascribe that God would call us his servant. Before he calls us anything else, before anybody else calls you anything, you should think of yourself first and foremost as two things. Number one, a servant of God. Number two, a child of God. I, I used to tell these young girls all the time, and they're struggling kind of uh, in youth and college age and some of these idiot guys, no offense, but y'all know we're stupid. Uh, I would always tell them, don't let any not-need, hairy-legged boy call you something less than what God has called you. God has called you chosen. God has called you daughter. God, you are a princess. Don't ever let some boy call you less than that. I would tell you, you young men, don't ever let somebody else demean you and call you less than what God is calling you. God has called you chosen. He has called you son. You are a servant 
of the Most High God. One step better than that, you are a child of the King. He tells Zerubbabel he's going to make him like his signet ring. That, that's not something that maybe we're fully familiar with. Uh, signet ring comes from the Latin signum, which means sign. And it would be a ring or a stamp, typically a ring, but it would be an emblem that would be representative of the king. The highest person in the, in the kingdom would have this ring, uh, and it would have an emblem on it, and they would press it into wax or some kind of clay, and it would leave the impression. And that impression meant that whatever you just saw was approved by the king. It was approved by the highest order, so it, it had clout with it. It carried authority with it. I'll give you two examples. In Genesis 44, Pharaoh hands Joseph the second place in the kingdom. He makes him second in command over all of Egypt. In Genesis 41, 41 through 43, he does this. Listen to verse 42. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Now, what did he do there? He said, I'm taking off the sign of authority and I'm giving it to you so that when you put your stamp on it, it's my stamp. When you tell somebody to do something, I'm telling them to do something. Listen to Esther. Uh, right in the king's... Now this is the king talking to Esther after she has done this bold move of going to him for such a time as this and saving her people. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. You see, not only was Zerubbabel chosen of God but he is also included in the lineage of Jesus. He would be like the signet ring and his sign would be God's word. And he does it here in Matthew 1, 12 through 16. He mentions in the lineage of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, Zerubbabel. <clears throat> That's a pretty good, pretty good standing coming from where he was, leading this cobbled up remnant back out of exile to rebuild the temple. And God restores them, sets their priorities right, and then he promises to use Zerubbabel, a promise of promotion. We'll close with this. I hope that you are as challenged as I am by this passage. I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff in here that, that if you don't really look at it from historical standpoints and, and really kind of flesh it out, it's a little hard to understand, but, but the challenge is clear that we're to remember that we are called out, we are set apart and we are given, given a significant task, every one of us. There are no insignificant tasks in the kingdom. Every, every task that you are given to do is your opportunity to be instantly obedient to your king. The encouragement is that if we align ourselves properly with Christ and if we submit to his lordship, he will take the bad that this world will throw at us. Remember, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. He will overturn it. He will hafah. He will flip it over. He will toss it around so that it will work out for your good and for his glory. And I think it's encouraging to look at the Israelites and their story and think about how that could bring uh, hope for us. Uh, anybody else in here, your, your walk sometimes has a little bit of hill and valley to it? You know, we talk about this. You are justified at the moment of salvation. You can never be any more or less uh, God's child at that moment. And then one day when you die or Christ returns, you will be glorified. You will be made perfect. Now, in between, the, the justification point and the glorification point is what we call uh, consecration. Well, that's not as rosy sometimes. We have this, this hill and valley. kind of. I'm, I'm getting closer to Jesus, and then I let my flesh take over. I'm getting closer to Jesus, and I let some problem shove me down. 
the, the Israelites were no different. As we continue to, to, to be formed in the image of Christ, as God promises he will do, we see in, just in this passage, just in this these two book, two chapters, they were freed from slavery. What a great high that was. They returned home to rebuild the temple. They're up here, man. They're rocking. They're, they're loving the Lord and they're serving the Lord. But then they got attacked and they stopped the work. And they kind of came down a little bit. Then they neglected the work of God while they focused on working for themselves, their own comfort, their own agendas. Got a little lower. Then God chastised them for their work or for their lack of proper prioritization. Then we see toward the end of the chapter, they correct their attitudes, they get back to work, and then here, the highest of highs, they receive a promise from God of His presence and His blessings. It's encouraging for me to see how they went from highs to lows to highs and know that if I'm in a low right now, I've got a high coming. I've just got to keep plugging along. I've got to keep trusting the Lord. Maybe I've got to do some self-examination and get my priorities back in order. Your walk with Christ will likely resemble this pattern of highs and lows, but as long as we repent and return, when God points out our error, He will guide us and He will bless us, just like He did them. Just as He promised Zerubbabel that He would use him, He will promise to use you if you will only repent, return, get your priorities right, and serve the Lord. God used Haggai to accomplish this for the Jews at the time, but He uses a lot of folks in our lives to get us the message today. And here's the big question that I want you to ask yourself today. Will you listen as he speaks? And will you respond in faith? Because see, y'all can come here every Sunday and you can hear me preach as hard as I can from New Testament, from Old Testament, from minor prophets, major prophets, Psalms, Proverbs, Revelation. But if there's going to be no application, what's the use? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to preach regardless. It's, it's like Isaiah, it's a fire in my bones. I, I got to preach, I gotta, or Jeremiah, I got to preach, I got to get it out, I, I got to do what he's called me to do. My responsibility, though, is not just to preach it. My responsibility is to live it. That's one of the things that the past six weeks has really kind of emphasized for me. I felt like I had a pretty good grasp on it. <laughs> it's a little surer grasp now than it was six weeks ago. My situation, my circumstance does not dictate my accountability, my responsibility and my obedience. God has given me a command. He has given me a call. Kevin, I want you to go and preach the word. I want you to be the senior pastor of West Mobile Baptist Church. I want you to love your wife, serve your family. I want you to raise godly kids and disciple them. I want you to take the gospel as it is with the people as they are. I'm going to do that. Where the rubber meets the road is how you respond. Listen, not to some crazy stuff that I say, and I know I say plenty of crazy stuff, but, but that you listen and hear the word of God I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to add to or take away the book. I'm just trying to, to flesh it out for you the best I can. My buddy Stacy would always say, put it in shoe leather so we can walk it out. If you don't respond in obedience to whatever I preach, whatever you read, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, then you're no different than the Jews when they quit the work on the temple. But man, isn't it great to see the grace of God? I want, to, I want to reemphasize this. When they stopped doing the work he gave them to do, he could have wiped them out. I mean, in a moment, with, with just saying it, he could have said, dadgummit, I gave you one job. And he could have wiped them out. And he could have done whatever he wanted to do. But that's not who our God is. He is long-suffering. He is steadfast in his love. 
He is patient. He punished them, but he punished them for their good. And he drew them out of their, their bad priorities. He set them on right priorities. And they rebuilt the temple, and we get the Messiah through the lineage of, of, uh, of the Jews. And, and aren't you glad of that? See, if he'd wiped them out, we'd have nothing to celebrate on the 25th. If we can't celebrate the 25th, we can't celebrate Easter. If we can't celebrate Easter, we have no hope. Whatever life throws at you, would you just ask the Lord to enhance your focus? Whatever you have to go through, whatever it is that, that, that life throws at you, would you just ask the Lord to keep you faithful? Would you ask him when he speaks that you would listen, that you would respond in faith and obedience? Whatever he calls you and commands you to do, that you would just give it all over to him and say, Lord, yes, my, my yes is on the table. Whatever you, whatever you ask me to do, my answer is already out there. I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to do whatever you call me to do as long as I have. Would you stand with me? As always, the invitation time is for somebody who doesn't know Christ. If you've never repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, you are lost and you are headed to hell. God didn't make hell for you. He made it for the devil and his demons. If you'll repent of your sins and confess Christ, he will save you and he will put you on a path to heaven. If you're here and you've made a profession of faith, but you just feel like you're walking in one of those dry seasons, maybe today would be the day that you would say, Lord, I want you to cleanse me from any unrighteousness. I want you to put me back to use. I want you to put me back in the game. Let me be effective for your kingdom. Ask him to do what the psalmist said. Search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way within me. Maybe there's some grudge or bitterness that you've got about something or somebody. Maybe there's something that you, you just know it's a, it's a burr in your saddle. And today, God is telling you to go make it right. You have, as always, we say this, you have one opportunity to be instantly obedient. I'm going to say a prayer. When I say amen, if you need to come and pray, you need to repent and turn to Christ. You need to join our church. Whatever you need to do, this invitation time is for you to do that. Whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do, move in obedience when I say amen, okay? Let's pray. God, you are great and greatly to be praised. Lord, I know that in my life, sometimes I've read the Old Testament and, and I've mocked the, the Jewish people. I've mocked Israel. I've said, how could they miss all that you have done? How, how could they cross the, dry, the, the, the Red Sea on dry ground and then complain and gripe? And then, God, I catch myself doing some of the same stuff. So I'm thankful that you were gracious and patient with them. And I'm thankful that you're gracious and patient with me. Lord, if there's anyone here today without Christ, I pray that they would see Jesus for who he really is. They would fall in love with him like I have, like so many of us have. And they would put their faith and trust in him. But God, I, I want to, specifically today, I want to ask you to quicken our hearts, to catch our attention, to know that... When you speak, we must respond. God, help us to get good at that. Give us practice. Help us to be good at when we hear the voice of God. Your word says, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. When he speaks, God, help us to listen. Help us to respond in obedience. Set our priorities in order and respond in obedience to do what you call us to do. Lord, I pray that for everybody here. I pray that you would help us to be more like Jesus. Use this invitation time for your glory. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.